This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. If you get your food from the grocery store, thank a farm worker. They have the most important job, and it's also a thankless one. Many of the men and women who are picking your cabbage, radishes, carrots, potatoes, and celery are immigrant farm workers, and many of those folks are indigenous. In this episode, I visit with a couple of indigenous immigrant farm workers at Rio Grande Farm Park in Alamosa, Colorado, to learn more about their journey here and why they left Guatemala. I also speak with Dr. Giovanni Batz, who is a visiting assistant professor at New Mexico State University, to learn more about why so many people migrate here and why so many indigenous people are displaced from their lands in Latin America. And I have to give a big thanks to my friend, Addie Lucero. She's the new program director over at Real Grand Farm Park, and she's the one who put me in touch with the two Franciscos who you'll hear from later. So thank you so much, Addie, and thank you, Real Grand Farm Park. And before I dive into this episode, I'd like to turn your attention up north and introduce you to another podcast that I'm a fan of. Hi, I'm Leah. And I'm Phelan. And we are the hosts of The Secret Life of Canada from CBC Podcast. It's a history podcast that looks at all of the terrible, weird, and beautiful stories of this land. Yeah, with a side serving of pop culture, of course. We love our reality TV. We really do. We look at stories like the complicated history of the Bay Blanket. Or the history of the oldest Chinatown in Victoria. Or the history of all the women who came to Canada and became nannies. Find The Secret Life of Canada on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are dozens more podcasts under the CBC Podcast label, some of which are also by fellow Indigenous storytellers. If you'd like to support the important Native food journalism work I'm doing here with the Toasted Sister podcast, share this podcast with your friends and family. Also, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Just search for this podcast on patreon.com or go to toastedsisterpodcast.com to find out the many ways you can support. So here we go. We have our masks on and we're sitting outside at Rio Grande Farm Park in Alamosa, Colorado. First thing I just say in my language, thanks to God we are here. My name is Francisco Lucas. Uh, I'm a Mayan native from Guatemala. I live here in Alamosa for like 36 years. And my roles or what I'm doing here is to organize some uh, Mayan families. And the first time when we start to work in the farm, I organized the Mayans family, and then after that, like now where we are now, there is some other Mexican families coming. We're still working with them together here at the park. 
tell me a little bit of history of the park here. Um, seems like it has a really cool history where the community came together and um, made sure that the, the farm is still here. If I can remember everything, <laughs> yeah, but uh, we started here in 2011 or 2012, something like that. When the mushroom farms uh, closed down, they were going to bankrupt. And then uh, mostly the families work there. It's uh, Mayan people. Patrick Ornillo, he told me, because uh, he's my friend, and he's, we work with him with the IRC Immigrant Resource Center. And that's when we, he told me, hey, Francisco, now where's the people, where's the community going to go? They're going to leave, they're going to go somewhere else looking for work or not? How are they going to support the family? And I said, I don't know. I talked with some of them, but they want to stay here, wait for a couple months. We don't know how for how long the mushroom farm is going to stay closed. And he said, but you know what? Over here by the postal school, because he said maybe they can lend us a couple across the land and they, the families, they can come and can grow in their food, at least save some money. Uh, that's he told me, okay. And I organized some families, and the first time I think they have 12 or 18 families. From there, we started work uh, year by year, and we're still here now. Tell me a little bit about the, the farmers here, the community here. Where, where do they come from, and um, wh why is it important for you guys to make, stick together? We're coming from Guatemala, and now some of them uh, from Mexico, too. Uh, we like it to work uh, to grow our own food because uh, special like years ago when we came here just we come and looking for money because in our country it's poor the government we have no support from the government and that's why we come and looking for better life for our family for our kids when we get this land uh, they offer this opportunity to us and they open for everybody, anybody, anybody want to come and grow their own food. And that's be good for us because this way we can uh, still grow our, our food, teach our kids too, especially here because it's organic food. We don't use any chemical, but here we know what we're doing, what we eat. Okay. What's your response to, like, the political response to, you know, more and more people from south of the border coming here to, to work and find themselves a better life? Like you said, that that's what a lot of people here are here for. And, you know, there's, you know, politicians who don't like that. There's, you know, individuals in the community who don't like that. They want, you know, everybody to go back to Mexico, you know, sending ice out for people. What's your response to that? I don't know. It's a little hard to, for too many people to know why uh, people immigrate from their, their country. Each country, the government, they not equal. In Guatemala, it's a lot of corruption. They, uh, like, especially like now about this pandemic, some countries send the money for to help the people for this pandemic but uh, when the money is coming people they never see that money the government take away that money from them the government stole those money and that's why our country is poor and that's why we immigrate from there we go to another countries looking for better life 
yeah, looking for better lives. But people from here, like the anti-immigrant, uh, they don't know why, because here uh, it's different. Yeah, maybe there's a uh, corruption here too, but it's a little hard to see it. They don't show up like in our country and from Mexico to South America. You can see it easily how the government uh, took the money away from 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 people. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're coming. And some people say, uh, go back, like you said, but go back to or your country. But we're not coming to store their job. If those people saying like that, I don't think they're going to go work at the potatoes. I don't think they're going to wor go work to the mushroom farm. Yeah. And after that, if, if those immigrant people go back to their country, who's going to go work at the the farms when the farmers are seeing the same like example like potatoes cabbage or carrots whatever if they go and buy to the store and then they see it's expensive then then they're gonna cry they're gonna they're gonna say why it's too expensive if no laborers if no people coming to work the farmers they know why they're gonna charge more money but those people they don't know yeah just they saying they don't know what we they talking about. Uh, thanks to the Creator, we have work, we have life, we have family, we have a family to support, and just work for them. Yeah, because if we coming from other country, we coming for something. Maybe everybody have a dream, and just do that dream in real. When we coming out from our country, in our minds, just to come and looking for better life, not just to go do something bad. I can say to anybody, just do your job, do your work, no matter what other people say. Mm -hmm. No matter what other people say, just we can do the best what we can do for ourselves, for our family, for our community. Mm -hmm. Uh, my name is Francisco Sebastian, and I've been farming here in the farm park for a while, but I come from uh, Guatemala originally. I've been to the state since 77, uh, work in Arizona, California, Oregon, up in Florida for a little bit, but then I've been here since 85 in the valley. So you've been here in, uh, you know, this country for a while now. Um, what was uh, one of the reasons why you, you left Guatemala? We left Guatemala with my dad. That was in 77. So he came in the 76, but, but he, um, I wanted to come with him too. So this kind of for better life. Um, uh, in Guatemala, I didn't see much violence was going on to what happened in the 80s or 81 somewhere there so it's kind of it's when everything happened but i wasn't down there so i didn't really see what's what's going on wrong down there but when i left that was everything pretty good but at this point it's kind of a little bit too much uh violence going on so it's almost everywhere but uh united states little you know it's a lot better though but <laughs> i left because uh better life i guess yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you come from one of the indigenous tribes there? Yes, I'm um, a Kateko. We uh, border with uh, Kanghobal 
so we we can understand each other, but some words that we can't really understand. So corruption is a big thing, but what does this corruption look like? What caused it? And how does it actually force people to leave? I spoke with Dr. Giovanni Botts. He's a social anthropologist focusing on Maya migration, displacement and diaspora, Guatemalan history, indigenous movements, and human rights. Hi, my name is uh, Giovanni Botts. I go by Gio. I'm born and raised in LA. I'm Kichem Maya, and I'm currently a presidential postdoc in the Department of Native American Studies at the University of California at Davis, but currently residing in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I asked him about what was going on in the 80s in Guatemala. That's about the time the two Franciscos left. Yeah, so when we think about the 1980s in Guatemala, this is an extremely violent um, time within Guatemalan history. So Guatemala suffered a 36-year civil war, which lasted from 1960 to 1996. But it was during the period of the early 1980s, specifically uh, between uh, 1980 and 1983, where Guatemala experiences gross genocide violence that indigenous peoples haven't experienced since Spanish colonization or Spanish invasion. It's during this time that's known to a lot of indigenous people simply as, in Spanish, la violencia or violence. This is a period where indigenous communities experience what the Guatemalan state called scorched earth policies, which was designed by the Guatemalan state and military and alongside with the U.S. government. And so when they, sp- when they speak about the corruption, I... I mean, I'm not too sure what they're trying to define there, but I'm I'm sure it refers to kind of this violence that they experienced during the 1980s, during the Guatemalan Civil War. During the Guatemalan Civil War, a United Nations Truth Commission would find that during this 36-year period, 200,000 people died, 1.5 million people were displaced, 626 massacres were committed by the military, Uh, 83% of the victims were indigenous, and 91% of the violence that occurred was committed by the Guatemalan state. Uh, so w- when we speak about corruption, I think it has to do a lot with structural violence and direct violence, as in this case. And unfortunately, the violence and corruption hasn't ended, really. Uh, a lot. Guatemala remains an extremely corrupt society uh, due to uh, those, in, those people in power. Uh, so a lot of ex-presidents of Guatemala are actually currently in jail for stealing from the people, basically. Then I asked Dr. Botts to take me back a little bit to add some historical context. Within Latin America, uh, Bolivia and Guatemala have the highest percentages of indigenous peoples um, within the territories. Uh, Historically, indigenous peoples have been marginalized, have experienced discrimination and racism from a small group of elites who have controlled the Guatemalan state since the colonizers arrived, right? So, you know, in Guatemala, In 1821, supposedly the country gained independence from Spain, but the question a lot of people ask is independence for who, right? Because even in 1821, those who gained independence, just like here in the U.S. or Turtle Island, it only benefited a small group of people, which is normally white men, right? European descendants. Indigenous peoples continued to be repressed because those in power needed to extract labor, needed to obtain indigenous territories in order to extract natural resources for exportation. So the story of Guatemala is one characterized by the displacement of indigenous peoples from their territories and genocide through multiple ways. Uh, So Guatemala, for instance, in 2018 had a census that found that 41% of the population was Maya. 
but a lot of uh, my activists, for instance, said that this was a form of statistical genocide and that really uh, Guatemala was about 70 to 80 percent indigenous or Maya. Maya peoples continue to experience unequal forms of, of violence. A lot of the Central American migration that we're witnessing right now, a lot of that, the majority of that comes from Guatemala and the majority of that is actually indigenous Maya. The story of Guatemala, again, is about land conflict. Basically, the Guatemalan state corporations, those that power, again, displace indigenous peoples from territories for their own ends. So, uh, you know, you kind of led into it, but what's happening today in Guatemala that's still causing uh, people to, to leave? Maybe the best way to illustrate the situation of Guatemala today is talking a little bit about the work that I conduct in the communities of Quetzal. Uh, so Quetzal is, forms part of the Xiu region, which is consisted of three towns, Chahul, Neval, and Quetzal. The Xiu region during the 36-year Guatemalan Civil War suffered 114 massacres. Again, I had mentioned that the military committed 626 massacres. The Xiu's experienced 114, which is almost about a fifth of the massacres. What's alarming about this is that the Xilas at that point in time, during the 1980s, which was the height of the war, only consisted about 1% of the Guatemalan population. So one of the questions that I look at is why the Xilas, right? For me, it has to do with land. So working with the Xilas in Quetzal, I've been working there since 2011. I arrived there when, uh, as a result of a conflict that the communities of Quetzal were having with an Italian corporation named Enel, who was constructing a hydroelectric plant known as Palo Viejo on a private finca. Uh, so when I got there, this is the first time that I heard Mayan leaders refer to the arrival of hydroelectric plants or mega projects, uh, which include mining, as the new invasion or the fourth invasion. So a question I had and something that I've been working on with, with leaders is like, well, if mega projects are the fourth invasion, what were the previous three? So, and I think, and, and it's through this concept of the four invasions that really kind of push back on these kind of dominant narratives created by the descendants of the colonizers. And the four invasions really provides this kind of local indigenous perspective to history. Uh, so when you think about within Mayan cosmology, history is cyclical as a comparison to Western notions of time, which tend to be linear. So the four invasions are as follows. The first is the arrival of the Spanish, when there was the imposition of kind of this Western mentality, uh, displacement of folks, the privatization of, of humans and non-humans, right? The dehumanization of indigenous peoples, uh, among other consequences. We know that the arrival of Europeans uh, led to a lot of genocide, uh, not just in Guatemala, but, but elsewhere. Uh, the second invasion occurred towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. This was during liberal dictatorships that promoted the exportation of coffee and other agricultural goods as a form of developing the national economy. Uh, unfortunately for local indigenous communities, this meant the displacement of, uh, from their communal lands in order to create private plantations to grow this coffee. Um, this also meant forced labor uh, to work on these plantations that were just established uh, throughout the Western Highlands where indigenous peoples lived. In the place where I work in Quetzal, um, they had it really rough. Quetzal is uh, between the 1890s and the, and, and the 1930s, almost half of Quetzal, which at this point was an ejido or communal land, became private property. There was basically outsiders, Europeans, who came and invaded Quetzal uh, and established these private fincas. This included an Italian family, 
uh, a gringo family, so family from, from the US. Uh, there was another uh, oligarch that went there, but basically this led to displacement of um, peoples from the best lands, right? Uh, again, this is something that occurred not just in the Ishul region, this occurred all throughout Guatemala to the point that by 1950, 2% of the population owned about 70% of, of the land in Guatemala. So when we talk about this 2% who owned the majority of land, we're talking about the oligarchs, we're talking about the elites. These are very dangerous people. These are euro Guatemalans. Again, some of them can trace their bloodlines back to the, the original colonizers, or at least people who were arrived early on during Spanish colonization. As a result of this land inequality, uh, there was a lot of uh, local land conflicts. Um, but in 1952, a democratically elected government under Jacobo Arbenz adopted land reform. So this was a way to really redistribute the land that was just stolen from indigenous peoples and other farmers and campesinos. Unfortunately, this meant the expropriation of lands that belonged to the United Fruit Company, which was a U.S. corporation. And I say unfortunately because a very powerful people within the U.S. government, such as the Dulles brothers, one who was Secretary of State, the other one who was the head of the CIA during the Eisenhower administration, had ties to the United Fruit Company and organized a coup against this democratically elected president in June of 1954. So basically efforts for land reform were reversed. This basically planted the seeds for what would become the Guatemalan Civil War, which actually began on November 13th, 1960. So today is November 13th, 2020, and it's actually the anniversary of the beginning of the guerrilla movement that sought to rectify the inequalities that existed in Guatemala, one of those inequalities being land. So the Guatemalan conflict has its roots within this land inequality, the discrimination that indigenous people suffered, and basically any efforts of reform within government was met with violence and repression. And even though the Guatemalan Civil War ended in 1996, the violence continues in different ways. More recently with the pandemic and the increase of extractivist industries in Guatemala, the violence is escalating and it's extremely alarming. So what happens in Guatemala today, anyone who wants to change their community, again, is, is potentially viewed as a threat by the government and you could be persecuted. Uh, there's um, the traumas of the war continue to exist. In my work, I, again, analyze and examine community efforts to combat mega projects. And a lot of the community leaders that I work with have actually suffered violence from the allies of this corporation. So a couple of my friends, for instance, have received death threats. There's uh, at least two people, two friends who I've known who've gotten killed as a result of kind of their involvement. I have two friends here. I'm in Las Cruces, so less than an hour away, who are seeking asylum as a result of their activism against mining or uh, denouncing the genocide that occurred during the Civil War. Uh, so to be an activist, to be an environmentalist, to basically try to improve your community in Guatemala could be a very dangerous affair. As a result of, of this, a lot of people flee. We have to remember that what I was kind of getting at in terms of the invasions, there was a lot of it land inequality. And there's still a lot of land inequality today. A lot of people don't have access to land, so they find themselves needing to go up north or here to the U.S. or Turtle Island uh, to find employment, economic opportunities to buy land back home. Unfortunately, this actually creates a very vicious cycle where people come to the U.S., they earn in dollars, are able to buy land. Now, the people who stay in Guatemala, the only way you can buy land now, because you have to compete with people sending back dollars, is to migrate. So what we're seeing in Guatemala right now is a crisis 
that's not going to go away anytime soon. So when we think about migration uh, and the media, when we think about um, why people are fleeing, kind of the popular answers we receive is people are fleeing because of violence and of poverty, right? But again, these are kind of like um, what we call cheap answers in the sense that they we, we really need to understand the complexities and the nuances involved within those terms. So when we think about poverty, again, we have to talk about land. Talking about land in Guatemala, people don't like to talk about it. When I say people, I mean the Guatemalan state. If, if we were to stop migration, there needs to be land reform. There needs to be land back, right? Land back movements are extremely important, especially today. When we think about violence, a lot of the times we hear about gang violence. And while gang violence is a thing, especially within urban spaces like Guatemala City or San Salvador, eh, we need to talk about structural violence, right? We need to talk about, and structural violence is basically the lack of access to land and violence uh, at the hands of the Guatemalan state, who again, persecutes community leaders who are denouncing the abuses that corporations commit within their ancestral territories. So if you look at what the, what's going on in Guatemala right now, for instance, with the pandemic, Guatemala is an extremely militarized society. Um, so we have to recognize that the Guatemalan state is using the pandemic in order to declare states of sieges in places where there are resistance movements against mining and hydroelectric plants. So that brings us to today and how American politics come into play. Trump's policies were extremely destructive and repressive towards migrants who are coming over, people who are fleeing uh, different forms of violence. So we have to recognize that Trump's policies are responsible for the deaths of, of a lot of people who are trying to cross over, who are, again, are, are seeking refuge or fleeing from something. Um, so again, when we think about his policies, this includes this, the, the separation of babies and children from their parents, which con- constitutes an act of genocide in terms of family separation. You know, the deportations uh, under his administrations are alarming. And actually, uh, during the pandemic, the Trump administration has used health law, something known as Title 42, to expel children and other migrants without due process. Um, so this is something that a lot of people aren't aware of, is that through the use of health law, through tri- Title 42, the U.S. government could deport people without giving them the opportunity to even seek asylum uh, once in the U.S., for instance. And a, a recent kind of study that I did found that a lot of the people who are being deported are actually unaccompanied minors. Um, So the Trump administration, I hope it's not a secret, has done some really horrible things. Now, the thing we have to be mindful is the incoming administration under Joe Biden, he's not an innocent person either when it comes to immigration. So under uh, Obama, obviously, Joe Biden was the vice president, but Obama is known uh, as the deporter-in-chief, right? So he deported Uh, millions of of migrants during his administration. Trump was equipped with the legacies of Obama to basically create a more destructive deportation machine. So I wanted to kind of point uh, to one of the legacies of the Obama administration, which was the Alliance for Prosperity. Now, in 2014, with the increase of unaccompanied minors from Central America coming into the U.S., the Obama administration designed the Alliance for Prosperity to try to and or decrease migration. Joe Biden was charged with spearheading this policy towards what they called, and I'm using air quotes here because I don't like this term, the Northern Triangle. I, in my work, do not use the Northern Triangle. It became very popular during the Obama administration, but we have to be careful because this is a very militaristic term that invites or, or justifies U.S. intervention 
within Central America. They're basically, it's an imperialistic term. The Alliance for Prosperity, it follows a very imperialistic agenda. Um, Joe Biden, in a New York Times opinion piece in January of 2015, describes the Alliance for Prosperity uh, functioning under three pillars. The first one is security. The second one is good governance. And the third one is the need for international investment uh, within places like in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. But when we take a step back, what, what does that mean? When we think about security, again, Joe Biden used the threat of gains to justify um, sending more guns, right? So militarizing uh, these governments uh, to combat gain violence. Unfortunately, what we have found is that the Guatemalan government, for instance, has used this military aid to actually persecute human rights defenders. One example includes the, the Jimmy Morales administration, so the previous president of Guatemala. He basically expelled an anti-corruption watchdog group which functioned under the United Nations. It was known as CICIG. So CICIG was really successful in investigating uh, corruption of government officials. The president at that point in time, Jimmy Morales, was being investigated for, for corruption. So what he did was he used some Jeeps that were do donated by the Department of Defense from the U.S. to basically patrol neighborhoods where human rights activists lived. He also used it to actually intimidate workers within the U.S. embassy because the seed received a significant portion of their financing from the U.S. government, ironically. So we have to be kind of, we have to pay attention of how military aid is used by these governments. Oftentimes, it's not used in a good way. When we think about good governance, it basically means just more U.S. control of these Central American countries. Uh, so this is very evident within third safe country agreements under the Trump administration, where basically these Central American governments have to do what the U.S. tells it to do, right? Um, so this is something that did manifest. Uh, the third pillar, which is international investment, this is more sweatshops or maquillas in Spanish and more mega projects. So we have to remember that Joe Biden and Trump are basically two sides of the same coin, and that's U.S. imperialism. This is U.S. interventionism within Central America. So we have to be extremely careful. Yes, Trump is gone, but be very careful about Biden because, again, his reputation shows that under the Obama administration, they also locked up kids. They also deported thousands of people, and they also support very corrupt, violent administrations in Central America. So we just have to be very careful about the new administration coming into power. While we're on the topic of what's going on today, I asked Gio about what kind of indigenous food work is being done in Guatemala despite all of this. You know, the Ishilas are definitely pushing for the diversification of crops. Uh, so they recognize that just growing coffee or other monocultural isn't sustainable. So there's a lot of local community leaders um, who have been pushing for the diversification of crops and really reclaiming indigenous uh, forms of farming, uh, which is extremely important. They've also promoted a farmer's markets. Uh, so basically not relying on, on going to the grocery stores and, and really investing within local farmers. So again, there are people who are trying to really push against this kind of capitalistic logic of exporting uh, agricultural goods. So the Ishilas are really trying to promote food security by growing their own food, right? So it's something that's been done for thousands of years and it's something that they wanna continue doing. And we can't forget about the most recent natural disaster. Hurricane Eta, a Category 4 hurricane, moved into Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Honduras in early November, and millions of people were affected. Right now, there's a lot of people in need. 
um, especially within indigenous communities. So two departments, um, departments are like states, but in Guatemala, uh, that were heavily impacted was Alta Verapaz and El Quiche. Uh, so where I do my work in the Yeshua region, that's located in Northern Quiche. Um, so there are communities that have been flooded, people lost their crops, there are people who have gone missing in mudslides who were buried, and people who just who have just gone missing. So there's a lot of need right now to send donations to basically help folks out to make sure that they eat tomorrow. Uh, so right now there are um, for, I'm working on a GoFundMe campaign in Cozal to raise money to support a lot of the farmers who were heavily impacted by this. So there's that campaign, there's other campaigns for neighboring Nevach and Chahul, as well as other parts of Guatemala. There's also campaigns for country, for Honduras and Nicaragua and other places who are impacted by this natural disaster. So again, unfortunately, indigenous peoples uh, in Guatemala are the ones who are suffering um, from climate change, right? Yeah, so we just have to be mindful of that. And, and hopefully this won't lead to another wave of, of migration um, and people being displaced from their territories. But this is uh, extremely alarming. And I just kind of uh, ask folks to just kind of keep an eye on America because uh, for the reasons I described in terms of the incoming Biden administration and also the, the natural disasters that are gonna cause long-term effects, right? So right now people are suffering from short-term effects, but the long-term is again, People lost their crops and, and people are going to starve tomorrow if, if there isn't support provided. Information and links to some of those fundraisers are in the show notes and the website ToastedSisterPodcast.com. Thank you to Dr. Giovanni Botts, Francisco Lucas, and Francisco Sebastian. And a very special thanks to Soul Traverso for helping edit some audio for me. Music was created for this podcast by C.W. Ione. Check out his music and brand new music on Bandcamp. Also at cwion.com. That's C-W-A-Y-O-N.com. This podcast is supported by the Kiwanik Broadcast Corporation, and it's supported by new patrons on Patreon. Marette Peters, Megan McCarthy, Gina Johnson, Risa, Lauren, Jamie Holding Eagle, Nicole Reorst, Lee Parker, Jeannie D. Ridges, Erin Marissa, Carolita, Carrie Diamond, Mata Iaya, Morbid Little Girl, Audrey Tatum, Clarice Mohammadi, and Co-Creation. Thank you so much for your monthly contribution. I will put it to good use, I promise. We'll see you next time. Until then, thank a farm worker. Mm-hmm.